Okay. With that said, let's go ahead and uh, get ready for our teaching this morning. Uh, so this morning we're going to be in, uh, it, it's a passage just a little bit hard to find, it's Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> so if you open up the cover of your Bible, it should be right there. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be right in the beginning today. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, I'll be starting a little bit uh, kind of down towards the end of the chapter. Uh, but I'll let you turn there in your Bible or open it up in your Bible app. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right, because we'll have the words up on the screen next to me so that you can follow along there. We're continuing this week. We're actually uh, getting close to, we're in the last uh, three weeks of our series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And what we have attempted to do in this series is to, uh, is to understand what is God's calling to us in the world uh, and to understand what is God's definition, what is the Bible's definition of justice, what is doing justice look like in our world, uh, and what would it look like for Christians to apply what God says about the world and what God says about justice to uh, some of the areas of our society where there are the most division or where there's the most conflict or the most confusion. And so that's what we've been doing throughout this series. We took about the first half of it just to talk about that defining of justice and, and looking at Scripture to understand it well. And then we started uh, transitioning into more application. And the first thing and the thing that I've said every week is that justice starts in the home. Justice starts in the home whenever we live out God's commandment, whenever we live out God's law to us in our relationships, uh, in the home between uh between couples, between married couples, between spouses, living out God's justice, rendering to our spouse what is their due, as God tells us, uh, and then also raising up our children to submit to Christ as Lord and to follow his word. Justice in society starts in the home. It's important that we note that so that we get that right, so that we don't just become, you know, quote-unquote, culture warriors, but not living it out in our home, Right? But then the ideal way that God uh, transforms society is not through revolutions, but through reformations. Whenever the gospel changes individuals, the Holy Spirit brings transformation and renewal in our, in our homes, in our churches, and then that renewal spreads out into transformation in society. And so then we began to talk about, for the next two weeks, the topic of race relations, and today we move on. Today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, and I'll start reading in verse 26. So Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given um, every green plant for food. And so it was. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, 
the sixth day. As we begin today, I want to tell you a story about two plagues. The first plague was in the second century A.D. The second century A.D., uh, if you're not really up to date on your ancient history, would be the century right after the life ministry, life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So that's what we call the first century A.D. Second century, that's the 100s A.D. In the second century A.D., in, in, the, in the city of Rome, there broke out this horrific plague, this plague that, that came about some kind of pathogen, disease, came into the society and started to infect people, and it was, uh, it was incredibly potent. This disease would infect people with it. They would start to show symptoms, and it, in a matter of hours, they would suffer a, uh, a, a painful death. This plague started to spread throughout the city of Rome, and what happened was is that, uh, you know, back then, it's true today as well, but back then especially, cities were really dirty places. You know, they were really dirty places. And so there's really, if you lived in Rome, there's really no place to escape the potential that you would catch this disease, this plague. So what happened was, is many, many Romans and Greeks uh, fled the city for the hills. They fled the city to go out into the country, to go to different estates uh, and, and villas that they could stay at, to stay, you know, in the cleaner natural environment away from the disease. But what that meant was, is that it was really just the wealthy Romans, you know, and the Greeks who had affluence, who had the ability to go off to their second home. You know, they had the ability to go to their vacation villa off in the mountains, but it was the poor people, uh, it, it was the lower classes, those who did not have as much power or influence or affluence, who were left in the city to eventually catch this disease and die a miserable death. But there's one group of people who did not flee. And that was the Christians. In the second century, even as they were misunderstood, as, they were, uh, as there was propaganda being uh, spoken against them, and as they were being persecuted, the Christians of the city stayed. They stayed in the city because as people were catching this disease and they were being brought out on mats on the streets, you know, lining up the various alleyways and, and whatnot of Rome, uh, they needed care so that they might recover from the disease, but so that they might even receive some kind of, um, uh, what is it called, palliative care as they were facing their death. The Christians remained in the city, and they served sacrificially these people who were suffering from the disease. Very often, at the cost of their own lives, Christians would go and serve those who were dying and then catch the disease and die alongside of them. And because of this, the witness of Christianity boomed. Now, it would not be for many more years that they would still face persecution and so on, but this was a major moment in the church because of their, their sacrificial witness. Now, jump forward about 19 centuries. In the 20th century, towards the end of the 20th century, you had another plague that came about in society. This plague also was horrific and it was breaking down bodies, it was shutting down immune systems, and people who caught this plague, this epidemic, were, were facing very often what would be a slow, painful, hard death. This was the pandemic, the epidemic of AIDS towards the end of the 20th century. But this time, Christians, rather than uh, giving a sacrificial and compassionate treatment of the AIDS epidemic, were the ones fleeing for the hills, or were the ones who were preaching uh, what were often, 
bigoted, you know, painful messages saying that what we were seeing in society was the, was the judgment of God upon these people. So instead of their witness increasing, it was decreased. I start with that today because I want to lay out on the, on the forefront before we dive into this topic of human gender and sexuality, that what we are talking about is people. Right? There are ideas and there are worldviews, there are ideologies, and there, there, are, there are activists pushing you know, a certain view of the world, which we must oppose. But at the core, there is a group of people that we are talking about. And LGBTQ, or, or whatever letters we might add, represents people. And people made in the image of God, regardless of their past, and regardless of their struggles, and regardless of their sin, deserve being made in the image of God, deserve our love, care, and respect. And so I want to make clear today that for the sake of Christian witness, we must consider how we approach this issue and do so with nuance, do so carefully, do so with wisdom that can only come from the Holy Spirit, so that it might be clear what we are doing whenever we oppose an ideology but love a people. And so today, as whenever I, I preach this sermon, I don't want it to be interpreted by, by anyone here, whether you might fall into that category of LGBT, whether it is outwardly or an inward struggle that you have been holding, or someone who might care for them, that I am preaching against a people, but I am preaching against an ideology, a worldview. With that being said, what I want to argue today is that God's design of the world as it is laid out for us in Scripture is the most just. That God's design of the world is the most just for human society rather than the design of the world that uh, our culture would like for us to follow and live by today. I'm going to argue for you today that God's just design is true, good, and beautiful as opposed to the design the vision, and the ideology being presented to us by our culture today. I'm going to start off each one of these sections with a question. So the first one is this. The first question is, does our culture's current view of gender and sexuality encourage worship of the creature or the creator? Does our culture's current view of gender and sexuality encourage worship of the creature or the creator? It's no secret now that our, there is a lot of confusion or there is a lot of debate. There is a lot of conflict around the topics of gender and sexuality in our culture today. This is something that has been at, one of, at, at the forefront of the cultural and societal conversation in America for a couple of decades now, right? But especially within the last several years. And we've seen quite an advancement in that, uh, in that side, which does not represent the Christian worldview, right? We have seen an advancement and a normalizing of uh, the LGBT lifestyles and the ideology driving it in our culture today. The question is, as Christians approaching this topic, the very first thing that we must take note of and, and ask is, is this ideology that is being driven today and is what has become the predominant view, what has become almost the, the, the accepted sort of common sense view in our world, is it one that encourages us to worship the creator 
or rather the creation. And what we must see is that our, our current cultural confusion over gender and sexuality is a rejection of God as God and a replacement of worshiping God as creator with a worshiping of the creation. Before we get into any uh, confusion over uh, what scripture has to say about uh, God's design for sexuality, what scripture has to say about how God has made man male and female, before there's any confusion over these issues, we must understand there is initially a rejection of Genesis 1, verse 1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the world. What the Bible begins with in its very first words, in its very first verse, is a declaration of the Godhood of God. It's a declaration of God as Lord and God as creator. And because the Bible begins with God created, and so on, right, everything else, what that means is that he is the designer and that his design is the one that we ought to follow. So anytime that we depart from God's design for anything in our lives, even if it is not on this question of gender and sexuality, anytime we depart from uh, what God has to say about raising our children, what God has to say about how we are to uh, build our homes and the type of conduct that ought to be true of our homes and in our marriages, and anytime we depart from God's design for what he has to say about telling the truth and honesty or anything else in life, before it is telling a lie, or before it is um, whatever else that particular sin might be, at root, at the foundation, it is a rejection of God as God. This is what Paul himself explained in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 21, this is what Paul says. He said, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Listen closely. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Notice what Paul explains here. He goes on to describe many different uh, issues and sins in society, but at the root, what he attributes all of them to, every problem in culture and every sin of individuals, what he attributes them to is in that last verse in 25, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. In other words, placing ourselves in the place that only God ought to be so that God's ideas and God's design become subservient to our wisdom and what we want to propose as our design. Paul says that it is this exchanging of the glory of the creator for the glory of the creation, of worshiping the creator for worshiping the creation. He says it is at root that this is what the problem is. And notice what is one of the first things that he says happens whenever a culture exchanges the glory of God for worshiping the glory of creation. One of the very first things that he says happens is sexual confusion, sexual impurity. Because this is one of the most powerful parts and aspects of human life, right? And so something that is one of the most powerful and core parts of human life, which is our gender and sexuality, once we get 
our foundational roots of worship and worldview wrong, well, then, of course, things would go wrong in this area as well. And so the first point is that God's just design is true. It's upon this pillar, and it's, and it's behind this, this battle line that we must stand, that God's just design, as he, uh, as he reveals to us and explains to us in his word, that it is God's just design and not the designs and wisdom of man. It is God's, which is true. Let me ask you another question. And this isn't even about our culture, but just about our church, about us. Is our view of gender and sexuality, is our view of these topics more influenced and informed by Scripture or by a bunch of strangers? Is it more influenced and informed based upon Scripture or by strangers? Here's what I mean by that. I think that many of us in our society today, and maybe even for many of us or some of us in the church, maybe even for some of us at Redeemer, our views of these issues have been more formed by strangers that we don't know their names rather than Scripture and God's revealed word to us. Let me introduce some of these strangers to you. Back in 19, uh, what was it, 1987, there was a neuropsychiatrist named Marshall Kirk and a PR consultant named Hunter Madsen who teamed up together to create a plan for uh, LGBTQ activism in America. They wrote an article together called The Overhauling of Straight America. And what this article would do, it actually, well, it was an article first and it was turned into a book, a book called After the Ball. But what this, they did in this article, uh, Kirk and Madsen, is they put together a game plan. They put together an operation for how they're going to take the ideas of the sexual revolution, so ideologies which were born by, uh, by people like uh, Alfred Kinsey, uh, Judith Butler, uh, and uh, Herbert Marcuse, Michael Foucault, all of these different uh, postmodern philosophers during the sexual revolution who were talking about these ideas of normalizing uh, sexuality, uh, sexuality and gender ideas, which were opposed to Christianity. They said, well, how can we take these ideas and implement them in our society? Make it something that, it, that can become common knowledge or the accepted view. That's what they did in this article. They gave six, uh, almost forgot how to count. They gave six points here for how they're going to advance this, uh, this ideology in our country. I'm going to read those six to you. These are direct quotes from their article. And the first one, the first uh, strategy was talk about gays and gayness as loudly and as often as possible. And so you see that this first step was then started to be worked out in our culture. Before uh, anyone, before it became the prevalent and accepted view of this new ideology in our world, it was being presented through movies, through TV shows, through music, through media, through reality shows and whatever else. Slowly but surely, on every TV show, on major news networks, and in every uh, movie and whatever else, there had to be some type of a presentation of an LGBT lifestyle, right? With the idea of that if it is put before, if, if just the image, not an argument, but if just the image is put before people enough and they see it enough, then it will become normal. So that was the first. Second, portray gays as victims, not as aggressive challengers. We see this as well. Third, give protectors a just cause. 
what they wrote, just a further explanation of this, what they wrote is they said, our campaign should not direct, uh, demand direct support for homosexual practices, but should instead take anti-discrimination as its theme. We've seen how this strategy as well has been played out in our society, how the argument over gender and sexuality is never framed one as, a, as an essentially religious or moral argument, which it is because it is an argument concerning human nature, but instead is an argument of bigotry versus acceptance, right? Discrimination versus anti-discrimination. The fourth point was make gays look good paint gays as superior pillars of society. The fifth point was make the victimizers look bad. Uh, Madston and, and Kirk wrote, at a later stage of the media campaign for gay rights, it will be time to get tough with remaining opponents. To be blunt, they must be vilified. Our goal here is twofold. First, we seek to replace the mainstream self-righteous pride about its homophobia with shame and guilt. Second, we intend to make the anti-gays look so nasty that average Americans will want to dissociate themselves from such types. The last, the final and sixth point was to solicit funds. The buck stops here, as they wrote. I point this out to show you that what is now today the predominant and accepted view of our culture and what is being presented to us as the obvious, progressed, you know, more modern choice is one that was uh, that did not become, you know, the the progressed and obvious choice just all on its own, but one that became this choice and one that that looks so influential to us today because of a very intentional campaign to make it that way. And so the question is once again, if as I was reading that, some of the, what some of their points were starting off light bulbs for you, like, oh, I, I have thought that before, and oh, I, or or I've seen that played out in in these conversations or in this media or whatever else, I want to ask you, so for us as Christians, is our view of gender and sexuality more informed by what Scripture says, or is it more informed by what Kirk and Madsen say, by what Butler says, said, by what Foucault said, and so on? Are we being more informed by Scripture or by strangers? The first application, therefore, on, the, on God's just design being true is this. Don't be fooled, stay sharp. Very simple. Don't be fooled, stay sharp. There is an intentional, uh, coordinated campaign to, as uh, Kirk and Madsen said, if you disagree, to paint you as hateful. Don't start to believe that message. Because we are grounded in Christian truth, we know that it is not hateful to stand upon what God's word says about how he has designed our world and yet to still love the people who go against God's design. There is no hate in that position. Don't be fooled by that. Don't be fooled by any of these arguments, but instead stay sharp. Be aware that there are forces in our culture and in our society that are trying to turn your mind not even so much through intellectual arguments, but through emotional manipulation. Back in 1948, there was a book published by an intellectual historian and political philosopher named Richard Weaver. Richard Weaver wrote in his book called Ideas Have Consequences, and he talked about, it was kind of, it's kind of like a, this post-apocalyptic prophecy that he had, not, not a literal prophecy, but you know this intellectual thought that he had. 
And he, he said that there was coming in our society by the trajectories that could, he could see even back in 1948. He said that our society was building this great machine that he called the Great Stereopticon. <laughs> the Great Stereopticon was this, this machine that was being built uh, piece by piece by all the individual uh, forms of, of media and, and the narratives that would be dri- uh, driven through the various forms of media in American culture, whether that be through the movie and television industry, whether that be through uh, news media, whether that be through radio or, uh, or podcasts, you know, or, or, whatever, or, or social media, whatever else it is. But he said that there's this great machine that is being built by all these different pieces. And the point of the machine is to continually project images, to portray ideas before our culture that would not so much make an intellectual argument, but that instead would manipulate our ideas through just presenting these, these ideas before us and these, these slogans, these narratives over and over and over again. What I'm saying is, is that you don't need to run off into the hills, cut off your internet and, and all media, you know, and become, become a hermit living separated from society. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we must be discerning. We must stay sharp. We must notice and, and, and draw the lines between, between narratives and between different worldviews and designs that are being presented to us and distinguish them as sharply as we can between God's design and their design. Standing upon the pillar, one last time, that God's just design is true. But in all this, I'll say again, as we practice in opposition to an ideology, we must be kind to people. We must remain kind. We must remain loving. We must remain friendly and compassionate to those who are LGBTQ, to those who are living in a, and whether it be a homosexual lifestyle, whether it be those who are uh, confused about their gender, who maybe are even transitioning, who have transitioned, whatever else. As we oppose an activism, we must still love the people. There should be no more compassionate place in our society than the church if we will stay centered upon the gospel. But that being said, we must stay friendly to the people, but we cannot become friendly to the cause. We must stay kind and compassionate, but in our, in our zeal to love people, we need to make sure that we stay holding on to biblical kindness, biblical compassion, and biblical justice. A second question for us. Does our culture's view of gender and sexuality give justice to people? Does our culture's view of gender and sexuality give justice to people? Let me note something else for you from the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth, right? It starts off with God. He creates everything, and he starts to form uh, his world into a place where we might live. You know, so he starts to form the great lights of the sky, the sun and the moon, night and day. And he says what? He says it is good, right? And then he starts to form the dry land and the sea. And he looks at it, and he says, it is good, he starts to form creatures, birds that fly through the air, the, the sea creatures that swim in his oceans and rivers, uh, land creatures to live on his land. He looks at all of it and he says, it is good. He creates humanity. He creates humanity in his own image. Uh, you know, there were other living creatures, but only for humanity, as he say, he breathed his own breath. 
He endowed his own image, and in creating them, he made them male and female. And he looks and he says, it is good. Over and over and over again, we have this, this repeating theme in the creation narrative of good, good, good. God is constantly celebrating and declaring the goodness of his work over what he has just created. Why? What does that mean? What does it mean for God to, uh, to be proclaiming good of his creation? Well, here's what it means. God declared his creation good again and again and again because everything that he created suited his purposes. Everything which he had made was good because it had suited the purpose for which it was made, right? He looked at the sun and the moon after he had created it because he had made them to be lights of the sky, right? One for the day and one for the night. They shine and he says, good, right? That's what made them good. And, and for everything else in his creation, he creates everything in this world with purpose. And in everything in this world, having its purpose, uh, which is to glorify him, he says that that is what makes it good. You know, think about this. What makes a hammer good? Is a hammer good if you try to use it to screw in a, uh, a screw, right? To twist a screw into something? A hammer is not very good. But whenever you use it to penetrate a nail into the wood, right, to drive a nail into something, well, then that is what makes it good, right? What, may, what makes dogs good pets, right? That they're loyal, loving, and affectionate, right? This is what makes dogs good pets as opposed to cats, right, who are always plotting your demise, right? So when we look at pets, we can look at dogs and say, good. <laughs> they fulfill a purpose. And so God looks at his creation, and he says, good, 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 good. Here's what I want you to see and what I want you to hear. God is saying a world filled with purpose, a world filled with meaning. And he looks at his people, his, his humanity made in his image, made male and female. He looks at them as he made them. And for that as well, he says, good. And so here's what that means for you. It means that your life, that your creation, that your existence and your existence as God made you is good, which means it is filled with purpose. Your life is filled with purpose. There is a meaning for your existence. God has you on the earth for a wonderful reason. But he also defines that reason, right? It's not left up to us to decide, well, what is my purpose, right? Because like being told that you have purpose, but then being left up to yourself to figure out what it is, that's not very helpful, Right, there, there's a thousand things that I could think of. And depending on whether we're talking about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, I might have different ideas of what my purpose is. But God gives us our purpose. It is solid. It cannot be taken away. And he defines it. Our purpose is to find ultimate joy and fulfillment and glorifying him. And then in our relationship with him to be people who, who cultivate and multiply. We read that passage together. He creates mankind, and he puts them into the garden, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, look, he's not just talking about kids, right? Kids are great, amen, right? That's a wonderful way of multiplying, right? But he's not just talking about that. He is talking about creating more good things in his world. So in other words, whenever Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were gardening, and they were working and keeping the garden, they were, they were securing its boundaries and, and whatever else, whenever they were going about doing their work, they were fulfilling their God-given purpose. And so what that means for you in your life, for whatever you find yourself doing, if whatever opportunities God has placed before you, your purpose 
is to glorify God by being fruitful and multiplying in all those opportunities that he has given you. The message of Scripture, at, at surface it might seem simple and a little surprising at how simple it is, but beneath there's infinite joy and pleasure. Wherever you learn that you can uh, discover your purpose in relationship to God by living out your daily life in the way that he has called you to, taking advantages of the opportunities he has given you, utilizing the gifts that he's bestowed on you, and glorifying him. In contrast to our cultural sexual confusion, in contrast to this, our culture's sexual confusion right now is due to a rejection of the goodness of God's design. So the second pillar or battle line, the pillar that we stand along, the battle line that we must stand behind, is that God's just design is good. Whenever we start saying that we can live according to our, to our own design, whether that be our own design of how we conduct ourselves sexually, whether that be our own design of how we view uh, the fundamental questions of human nature, how we view the fundamental questions of, of gender, male and female, and, and, and so on, and how those are expressed in our world and in various societies, even as we approach these things, if we start to say that we can live according to them by our own design, well, then we are saying that our own design is better. We are saying that, our, that God's design is not good. Instead, it is ours. Now, in, in response to this, activists for, uh, for you know, trans activists or, or activists of, of whatever else underneath, you know, LGBTQ activists, might point to gender confusion in our world, right? They might point to it and say, well, look, there are people who feel a dissociation between like their inner self and their body, right? They, they feel a, this, this disgust towards their own body, their, their gender expression that they cannot get, get rid of, and it causes them anxiety, it causes them depression, it causes them suicidal ideation and so on. So we've got this confusion, we have this dysphoria. More than that, we have sexual hurts, right? And, and, and sins that have been perpetrated against people. They, so the activists might respond, so how can God's design, what scripture says, created in the image of God, male and female, how can that be good in a world where these realities exist? And so in response, as Christians, we must acknowledge, yes, those realities exist. There are sexual sins and hurts that, that many people carry, if not all of us carry in one way or another, right? And some to a far worse degree than others. And yes, there are those who experience a confusion or a dysphoria, whatever you, or, or a confusion, whatever else you might want to call it, about their gender. But as Christians, we look at these things and we say, that is not because there was a problem with God's good design. That's because there is sin in our world. And whenever sin comes into our world, it causes more, you know, sin in our world is more than just the sum of human behavior, right? Because if we only think of sin and the effects of sin in our world as well, you know, I, uh, I punch somebody and it hurts them. It was a sin to punch them. The effect, the hurt in our world is the hurt from them getting punched. Or I tell a lie and, and, and I betray somebody and then they ex later experience emotional hurt. If we only think of sin and the sum of what sin does in our world in terms of human behavior, right, just an action and a, res and a response, whatever happens from it, then we will miss out on uh, on all of the effects of sin in our world. This is something that Christians have been discussing, 
all the way back to the Puritans and even before, that because sin has entered our world, it is more than just an effect. It brings itself, it manifests itself out more than just human behavior, but it manifests itself in even the confusions that we face regarding our own identities. It manifests itself in the, the pains and the struggles and the things that we go through, even in our own minds and our own souls, right? And so even for those who experience a gender dysphoria or confusion, whatever else it might be, a, a, a feeling of not being at home and hating their own flesh, in response to these things, we say, that is the result of sin. The solution is to, is to embrace God's good design right? To let God's word uh, wash away and to try to ease and, and, and do away with sin's effect on that person, not to throw away God's good design. But instead, trans activism is, let me, let me especially just focus in on that one for a moment. Trans activism today instead says that the solution is not to embrace God's good design, but to reject it and throw it away. And what, what I want to argue is that this is an injustice to people who are suffering with gender dysphoria and sexual confusion. The ideology of trans activism isn't just. When we reject God's good design, things turn disastrous. You can see this already in our society. The signs and the results of what happens when we reject God's good design are already all over the place. But especially there... There's a scholar, uh, an ethicist, who wrote an excellent book uh, named, uh, the name of the book was When Harry Became Sally. Uh, the author's name is Ryan T. Anderson. And Ryan T. Anderson, a, an expert scholar, ethicist, wrote in this book and explained how because of the, the activism of the trans ideology in our culture today, what we have is the promotion of just one narrative, right? The narrative, which is that, if you experience a dysphoria or a confusion, the solution and the only solution and the solution that we rush to is transitioning, is right, to, to make sure that what you feel inwardly starts to become aligned with outwardly. Because this one single narrative and this one single solution is the one that is being pushed so hard by activists in our culture, through whether it be through therapists whether it be through uh, news media and outlets, whether it be through right, the coordination of media to paint anyone who disagrees with that narrative as, as, as being backward or unscientific or bigoted or whatever else, there are a large group of people who are being hurt because they're never even told that there are other options, especially for those children who are experiencing some sort of a gender dysphoria. It is not all that uncommon for boys or for girls as they start to go into adolescence and their body starts to change and, and they're experiencing the pressures of the world and their peers around them. It is not all that uncommon for them to start experiencing a depression, right, an anxiety, and for that to then turn into a hatred of what they are witnessing in their own body. And because this one narrative is being pushed so hard today through the internet, through overeager gender therapists and so on, there are a generation of teenagers who are being hurt because they are being overly encouraged to start transitioning, taking hormone therapy, um, to start living a different lifestyle, to start uh, perhaps even go undergoing some surgical procedures. 
because they're not told that, well, hey, you know what? We can work through this. This dysphoria that you're feeling right now, did you know that if you can just hold on for a few more years and over 90% of the cases, it goes away? Right? Did you know that with, with, some, with some good help, right, with, maybe with us changing some of those negative perceptions of your body, you can experience a lot of peace that does not have to come about by you damaging your body with hormone treatments, surgical procedures, and whatever else. And so you see all these stories out here, stories such as from Carrie Stella, a, a, a young woman who, because of over-eager therapists and a, a community and school and everything else that was pressuring her to transition because she was feeling some confusion, started to go through the transition progress as, as a young woman still uh, in her teenage years, living transitioned as a, uh, as a man for several years before one day realizing that the, that the peace that they kept promising her was going to come would not come. She said every time that would take a step towards transition, whether it was their hormone therapy, I would experience a brief moment of peace, but then those goalposts would move back. So I'll take another step towards transitioning, get a brief sense of fulfillment, and then the goalposts would move back. Finally, she decided to detransition, go back to uh, the gender that God had given her at her birth and, and embrace it, start to change her perceptions and some of the negative views that she had had towards her own gender and towards her own body. She detransitioned, and through the help of, of good people who, who helped her to embrace God's design for her, she experienced freedom. She's now sharing her story, and there are tons and tons of people with gender dysphoria, or even those who have transitioned, who are feeling some of those very same pressures, but too afraid to speak out because the one narrative was being pressed on them so hard. Similarly, there's the story of Ellie Palmer. It was also a teenage girl experiencing some confusion. She transitioned, and then, like, just like Carrie, decided to detransition. And here's how she explains that detransition. She said, it was just like a big relief for me. If I had been going to a good therapist, if I had been going to a, a, a school, her depression and gender dysphoria had caused her to retreat from school, and she was living in isolation. So she blames going to an overeager therapist not being in community with her teenagers. She said, if I had had friends and had meaningful relationships with people outside of the internet, I know that I would have been able to reconcile my female identity with myself. The stories aren't being promoted by the broad media, but they are out there and they are growing. And it may not be in 2021, it may not be next year, but one day our society is going to have to reckon with what we are doing to a generation of young people because we are rejecting God's good design. Therefore, it is, it is an injustice to do this to people who are confused and who need help. Moreover, it is an injustice, this ideology, towards those who disagree because inevitably what happens we see this happening now even our, in our culture with things such as the Equality Act. What is happening now is that the ideology is one which is not just uh, being promoted as this is good for an individual, right, to make according to their own decision as, as an autonomous person, but their decision must now be accepted and celebrated by everyone else. There is no room for dissent. 
And for anyone who does dissent, they'll be painted as a hater, as we talked about before. They'll be painted as bigoted, backward, or whatever, you know, as, as hysterical, unscientific people and whatever else. And more and more, there is a push for those who dissent to be punished by the authorities. There's no room for disagreement. And the reasoning behind it, the intellectual foundations are, are pretty obvious. Because, let me give you this example. So, I'm a Christian, right? The core part of my identity, more than anything else, is that I am in Christ. I have been saved by Christ, and I believe being saved by Christ means that I have been adopted by God as his child. I am a child of God. I am a son of God because of the gospel. And so, let's say that I made it as like a part of my identity, a part of my name, Aaron Champ, child of God. And I wanted people to start calling me that, Aaron Champ, child of God. Now, if someone refuses to call me that, does that threaten my identity? No. Why? It doesn't threaten my identity because in my worldview, that identity uh, and, and the security of it is not contingent on, on people's acceptance of it because it is secure in who God is and what he says. And so since it is secure in the existence and word of God, I don't need affirmation from any person around me. They can disagree. That's okay. It's not a threat to me because I have God's word. But if you have a worldview where, which, which denies in the beginning God, right, which denies the, the existence and the word and the authority of this God who is there, what instead happens is that, well, then you become an autonomous individual with deification-like powers to give yourself your own identity, okay? So if you are your own deity, and I'm not saying that anyone who follows an ideology, this ideology out there is calling themselves a god, but if fundamentally in your worldview, it is your word and it is your self-identification which is ultimate, then if somebody disagrees or dissents from that identification, it is a threat to your being. Once again, a rejection of God's truth and a rejection of God's goodness will lead to injustice. Injustice for those trans individuals and injustice towards those who disagree. The application here is don't be afraid, stay courageous. Don't be afraid, stay courageous. Just remember the kind of things that they said about Jesus. Remember the kinds of things that they've said about Christians for two millennia now, for, for 21 centuries. The, the kind of things that they say about us today, if, if you go and study, I'm not, I'm not going to get into it now, but if you, you go and study your ancient history, the kinds of things that they say about us today aren't all that bad to some of the things that they said about Christians in the first few centuries, right? They, the, the kind of name calling there was and the things that they assumed about them, I mean, they believed that they were cannibals, okay? They were called cannibals. They accused them of all kinds of other things I'm not going to get into. Uh, you know, they're called atheists and cannibals and all these different things. Remember the things that were said about Jesus. Remember the things that were said about our ancestors and our, our fathers and mothers in the faith and so on. And yet, through every age and over against every challenge, the gospel remains victorious. And God's design in our world no matter how hard we fight against it as people or a culture, God's design of our world remains the only objective true one. So don't be afraid. Stay courageous. The last one is this. God's just design is beautiful. 
So God's just design is true. We must stand upon the truth of it. It is good, which means we are all filled with purpose. We are all filled with purpose in the way that we are made and in the, in the gender that God gave us. And then lastly, God's just design is beautiful. If we live in a world which begins not with the creator, right, who, who creates the world, who rules over it, who designs it according to his infinite wisdom, but if we instead live with a worldview that begins with the creation. And so whatever are our ideas and whatever are our opinions about ourselves and the world are ultimate and they are final, then what that will inevitably lead to is nihilism. What that will inevitably lead to is a worldview and a sense of existence where there is no purpose, where there is no chance of being truly fulfilled, where there is no chance of our souls being deeply satisfied with joy, but instead there's only the the fleeting pleasures of life that we might be able to soak up through different pursuits, right? Whenever we reject God's creation, whenever we reject him, then we will inevitably be found with this. But whenever we look instead at the glory and the wonder of God's creation, whenever we look, like I said before, at this story where God creates night and day, and then he creates sun and moon, dry land and water, right? The, the creatures of the land and the creatures of the water and the creatures of the sea. What we see in this description of God's creation and the way that he has made our world, we see it being uh, communicated almost as though uh, the way that an artist, that a painter works on his canvas, drawing together, right, all of these diverse colors and, and diverse shapes and, and, and textures to paint one beautiful picture. There's symmetry to what is being said about God's creation. There's this poetry to what is being said about God's creation as he brings together these different complementary parts of his world to bring to create something beautiful. In the story of God bringing two different things together to, to create something beautiful goes on even beyond the story of creation to the story of the gospel. Whenever it tells us that Jesus Christ came down to be our Savior, but so that he could accomplish something which was not just the forgiveness of our sins. So he could accomplish something which was reconciliation to God and so that he could win something for himself. It is talked about in the New Testament this way, that Jesus is the bridegroom who comes and through his death and the resurrection wins his bride. Once again, what was started in the creation with these with this symmetry and these complementary pieces being brought together to create something beautiful, poetic, and to the glory of God is also, hap- also happens in the gospel. Whenever Christ the bridegroom dies on behalf of his bride so that she might be cleansed from her sin, washed and be made new, redeemed, and then be united to Jesus as her groom. This presents to us a beautiful hope. For all of us, regardless of our struggle, the gospel calls all of us to the same. As I said before, maybe some of us in here have been uh, wrestling with some, uh, with some sin or some hurts or some identity confusions that maybe you've, you've been keeping secret, right? But the good news for you is that the gospel provides an answer. If we have been living according to a way and a lifestyle that goes against God's design, the good news is that Christ died for that sin. Christ died for that rebellion. And more than that, he died so that we might be united to him as a husband and a wife are united together. And so lastly, I just want to end with this. Don't be silent. Advance with the good news. 
there's good news for us as individuals, for us all. The, go- the gospel that calls us all to repentance and obedience to Christ as our Savior and the healing and the restoration that comes with that. Keep sharing that good news. Even when you're misunderstood, keep sharing that good news. Don't be silent. Don't be, don't be shamed or feared into silence, but remain steadfast on the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are living in what we can certainly call hard times. We're living in contentious times, and we're living in a time where there is certainly at the level of religious ideas and worldview there, where there is a battle going on. Lord, in, in this battle, we lament that far too often there are people in the middle of it who, real people who are being hurt. Lord, how easy it might be for us to overlook those people and just wage war on an ideology, but not bring a message of hope and of healing, of forgiveness of sin to to those people who are there caught in the middle. Father, I ask that your gospel would emerge as the, the only narrative, the only story, the only worldview, the only message that can bring uh, hope and healing to our society, to any of those individuals um, who experience sexual sin, gender confusion, um, harm to their bodies, that through our persistence on your message and our witness of sacrificial love, that your gospel might emerge as the beautiful answer that calls our world into embracing this relationship that comes in you that is the only one that can provide us with uh, true fulfillment and eternal joy. Lord, is that it is that fulfillment and eternal joy, that peace that we desire for our neighbors, the same joy and peace that we have experienced as we have died to ourselves, that we've died to our past and been given new life in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you glorify yourself through our witness and through our imperfect efforts as we attempt to stay sharp, stay courageous, and to keep advancing first and foremost with love and your good news. We pray this in the name of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen.